Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. strength will be coming home on Sunday turn around unpack repack on Monday leave on Tuesday for NYC hallelujah amen I'm going to have a good good time in the Lord and so just pray that the Lord would strengthen us and be with us amen all of those endeavors revelation chapter number one revelation chapter number one I'm going to begin reading with verse verse number nine of revelation chapter number one here this evening the Bible states these words I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation or in trouble, pressure, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou hast seen, write in the book and send it into the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, I want to include verse 13. I don't know if I sent that to y'all, but if we can include verse 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with the golden girdle. Skipping, if you will, to verse number 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. For a little while tonight, I want to minister this here this evening. Hope for you and the church. Hope for you and the church. Let's pray right now that God would help us. Father, I come to you here this evening. God, anoint my mind here, Lord, in this evening service, Lord, and the words that would, Lord, be spoken out my mouth. Mark any air, Lord God, from them today. God, we pray, Lord, for your anointing, not just in the pulpit, but in the pew. God, I pray, oh, Lord, that you're able to speak to us, Lord Jesus, through your word in the next little while. God, that you're able to help us and strengthen, Lord Jesus, every individual, Lord, in this place. God, individually and collectively. God, as a body tonight, God, we worship you. We honor you, Lord Jesus, in this house. We need the glory of the Lord, God, to come down and make himself known in this place, God, before we leave. God, I pray, Lord, we'll thank you and we'll praise you and we'll glorify you, Lord, for what you accomplish in this place. In the name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen and amen. The church say amen. 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 You may be seated, amen, this evening. You may be seated this evening. If there was ever a church that was acquainted with persecuted, persecution rather, ever a church that was acquainted with problem, things not always going their way, turmoil, uh, dismay, confusion, 
it would be the first church was acquainted with these things. I know that we're living, and only to read just the news a little bit, that we're living in troublesome times. Uh, we are now on the backside of an election, and it just seems like society has fallen apart. Uh, people are, are just crying the woes over what's happened College classes are being dismissed. People are being pandered to and having free items given to them because of the calamity. There's riots taking place over all of that. But there's also just tumultuous times within the church, tumultuous times within the house of the Lord. And the first century church was familiar with all of this. They understood what it meant to be hated as Christians. They understood what it meant to be despised because of their religion, quote-unquote, throughout the Roman Empire. They understood what it meant to be the bullseye, if you will, of the target and all kinds of different motivations uh, behind being targeted as Christians. Politically, they were despised because the Romans viewed them as being disloyal. They were not loyal to Caesar, so to speak. They did not consider Caesar to be a divine authority as those of Rome did. And so politically, they were despised. Religiously, they were accused, imagine this, they were even accused of almost being atheists because they did not worship the vast array of Roman gods like the rest of Rome worship. Instead, they worshiped, as we spoke this morning, an invisible God that was not an idol. Socially, they were rejected as well. They were from mostly the lower class of society and they were just loathed by the, the higher-ups of the Roman Empire. So they were looked down upon in that sense as well. Economically, uh, they were criticized. They, they were seen as a threat by the pagan priests because they, they, they started putting out of business those that were making idols. Amen. We see that Paul did that very much so in the New Testament scripture of Diana. And they're putting away, if you will, the, those and winning those that made idols and craftsmen. And so it hurt the economy of the pagans. And so they were looked at in a negative sense as a result of that as well. So all around them, they lived in the society of paganism. They lived in a society that was very much so immoral. Amen. They lived in a society that was very oppressive. Not, I say, far removed. I think we can look at very quickly through the book of Corinthians that we're not too far removed from that day in our day. There are people worshiping gods outside of the God and there is immorality upon every hand. You don't have to turn over a stone to find it. It is prevalent within the world and oftentimes, sadly, even within the church. And so Christians, if you will, to a certain degree, not, not because they set out to be, but because they were loyal to God, as a result of that, they became an enemy of the world. And because of they were an enemy of the world, many of them left their lives, amen, through martyrdom. They were, if you will, killed for the purpose of being loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we turn to Revelation, we're receiving a writing from the pen of John, the last of the 12 disciples, the last living disciple. He was an apostle, if you will, of the Lord. He has observed the church in its birth. And he's observing the church now uh, 50 to 60 years removed from its birth. He's seeing what the church was 
and he's seeing what the church is. She, he's seen her when she was first set aflame on the day of Pentecost and all of the great miracles and signs and wonders that were wrought in the book of Acts. He has witnessed and heard of and been a participant in, but now everybody's life has been given for the cause of Christ, and now only his exists, and through his eye view, he can see in comparison how the church was right now in this hour and he realizes something he takes a pulse concerning something and he's saying basically this the church is not what the church once was the church isn't the same church that was born on the day of Pentecost there's not the same vehemence there's not the same power there's something defective if you will concerning the church I look him over the 50 to 60 years she's not what she once was telling society at that day that we got a dilemma on our hand concerning the health and the vitality of the church. Here is John, a 90-year-old man that's viewing all of this through the spectrum of time, the ups, the highs, and the lows, and where she now stood. Could someone say amen? Being that 90-year-old disciple, he had, he had went through his life of woe and mayhem as well. He has already been attempted, attempted to be killed, but now as a result of his allegiance to the Lord, remember, he said it was because of his testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God that he was sent to where he was on that barren island of Patmos. Just an just a island, if you will, there. And his his his, his Obligation. His duty on that island was simply to break up rocks. It, it was his means of punishment, just to break up rocks upon this island. It is said of John that prior to him going to this island, that he was more than likely scourged. He was more than likely just put in fetters as well, uh, left with hardly any clothing upon his body, given insufficient, if you will, food, slept upon the bare ground. His, his life would be spent in the darkness of a cave on that Isle called Patmos and oft times working under an overseer with lashes going upon his back. Patmos was a very unique place. About 24 miles west into the sea off of Asia Minor. Amen. It would be Patmos. It would be some six to eight miles long, not more than a mile wide. Its circumference would be about 15 miles around, if you will, the perimeter. Not a very big island at all. And if anybody in this hour had reason or purpose to be depressed or feel like defeated or feel like overwhelmed, it would have been John. Whenever he considers the history that he had seen, he knew Jerusalem at one time was thriving, but now at this moment, 20 to 25 years earlier now Jerusalem was just a wasteland he's seen it in its heyday but now there's not much left of Jerusalem even to recognize he had seen hundreds of thousands slain in the streets whenever it met its destruction he had seen the Roman armies come throughout Israel and destroy 900 cities in the land of Israel mass genocide of the Jews all across the land if anybody had a reason to be upset desire to throw in the towel and say I'm ready to check out because it's too much it could have been John 
He was standing at a place thinking that perhaps all hope for himself, all hope for the condition and the vitality of the church is gone. He could have felt evaporated, if you will, in his spirit. But there's something that says that while I was on this aisle called Patmos, a barren land under the hardship of the labor that I've been put under, whenever it became the Lord's day, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day because this is who I've been for nine years I come to preach to this congregation tonight I don't know every woe in your life and I don't know everything that's been turned upside down but there is still a place in your life and it's called the presence of God that if you can get in the spirit if you can get in the spirit some would say amen. Oh, yes. And so as long as I read the ads and as long as I read the headlines and the tabloids, if you will, at that, I will find myself sinking into depression, sinking, if you will, to being overwhelmed by my society and my surroundings. If I would cast my eye upon the unsuccesses of the church and the failures of the church, I would crawl back in my cave and say, leave me with my rock and my punishment. I'm just going to go on and check out. But whenever I realize that those things do not bind the realm of the spirit some would say amen John had been a pastor himself he was a pastor now he's an exile a prisoner seemingly waiting for his death but he said on the Lord's day this old 90 year old man that knew what pastoring was all about said I pushed my way through all of that junk I pushed my way through everything that I seen everything that I felt what my surroundings were I pressed through all that stuff and I was in the spirit I'm telling you this, if you get in the spirit, it doesn't matter what the hell is that you're living in. If you get in the spirit, the spirit will create an environment. The spirit will create a surrounding in the midst of all of that mud. Someone say amen. John has seen, he said, I was though in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I look now, the Bible says in verse 10, and heard... Behind me, a great voice as of a trumpet. John said, not only did I get in the spirit. Somebody was, I'm going to mute myself. Somebody was talking to me. And he says in verse 11, saying this one that talked to him said, I am Alpha. And I am Omega. I'm the first. And I'm the last. Someone say amen. <laughs> you understand what I'm telling you, John? You've seen the church in its beginning. And right now it's in tremendous woe. He says, but I'm both the beginning 
and the end of this matter. And just to let you know, John, it's not over yet. It's not finished yet. Hallelujah. Someone say yes. So there is hope for John in the circumstance because in the middle of it all he is hearing the voice of his master. He's hearing the voice of his savior. He might be in chains and fetters but God is speaking. He might be on a barren place but God is speaking. Things might not be right in the church but God is speaking. Amen. Everybody else may have died before him but God Because people poise themselves, even with human relationships, they poise themselves in a place sometimes when they've been estranged or not heard from someone in a while. You know what they say? If I, if I could just hear their voice one more time. I don't know what was going through John's mind. If he had any of that type of mentality, if I could just hear his voice. I know I'm not in church today, but if I could just hear his voice, I know circumstances have not allowed me to be there. If I could just hear his voice, and he heard that great voice, I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. What are you saying, God? I'm still here. There's hope for you. Someone say, there's hope for me. There's hope for you. The spirit of the Antichrist hasn't been full throttle and revealed and at loose in the world today because there is some other spirit, there is some other entity that's there that is prohibiting that from happening according to the Thessalonians. Amen. It is the spirit of the church. It's the spirit of God in the church and it's not going to take over until that spirit is gone. And while that gives me hope concerning that, that gives me hope as an individual. It might get bad, but if the Antichrist has reared his head. Christ hasn't went anywhere. He's still here. His presence is still here. He's still working in and out and through. It's not over, folks, until it's over. Uh-huh. Got a hanky in that jacket. Now, John's Responsibility then is to write into these seven churches. Seven churches that were representative in his day, but also applicable for our day. Some people have tried to break down the seven churches to say that they are seven dispensations, one to follow another, and then that we are only in the Laodicea church. I don't necessarily agree with that. I believe you can find smidgets, facets of all of these churches. In the hour that we live in. Not only can you find churches like this, within churches you can find individuals in these different spots. And so John's responsibility is to write. And so he's going to write, you guys got a little bit of time? He's going to write to the church at Ephesus. Not all churches were condemned of the seven Two were not, but the other five were. Because John's saying this is where we were. He's using the measuring stick of their birth compared to their maturity now. And he says, Ephesus, he spoke to them through the spirit of the Lord. He said, you are the church that has left its first love. So you left your first 
love. You once were in love. You once had a great affection for the Lord. You have even, he tells them, some of the good things that they have going in their church, in their congregation. Yet he said, despite all of that, he says, nevertheless, outside of all that, you have left your first love. It's, it's almost like the list uh, of the Syrian Naaman in the Old Testament where the Bible talks about that man being a captain and he's a great man, an honorable man, a successful man, a mighty man, all these accolades. But then there's that word, but he was a leper. And so it's like, Ephesus, you got this going and that going and this going. Nevertheless, though, you've left your first love. That can apply corporately on a church and that can apply corporately on an individual level. If that's you tonight, listen to me. The problem with leaving your first love is this. You cannot say you lost your first love. Can't say you lost your first love. Hey, man, that's incorrect. That's a misquoting of the book of Revelation here of Ephesus. They didn't lose their first love. They left. They left their first love. In other words, they sent it away. They bid it goodbye. It's the same word that's used for whenever a spouse divorces its spouse. Somebody left. It's to give up. It's to abandon Someone say amen. You can lose stuff by accident. You can lose stuff by accident. But to leave something's a deliberate act. Someone say amen. It might not happen suddenly. It could happen little by little. But it's happening. He wrote to the church at Ephesus. He says, listen here. He says, you've left your first Love, you got somehow a course correction. Something needs to happen. You need to repent. He tells that to most of them, that they need to repent. But there is a problem. This is what we're trying to get at. There's a problem within the church at Ephesus, and that is they left their first love. He spoke to Smyrna. He didn't have any word of negativity towards Smyrna. He told them, he said, you all are a faithful church. You've been faithful. You've been faithful through the flood. You've been faithful in the fire. Amen. In every aspect of your life, whenever I begin to look at it, you are a faithful church. Thank God. For that. Thank God for faithful people of God. Thank God that the one thing that will be spoken over anyone when they enter into heaven will be this. Enter on into the joy of the Lord, thou good and faithful. Faithful servant. Thank God for the faithful church. I want to be numbered against them. Amen. With them rather. But here's the, there is the true crux of everything, folks. At times in our Christian walk, we are sometimes the church of Ephesians. And there's other times we're the church of Smyrna. He spoke and wrote a letter to the church of Pergamos, the compromising church. Uh -huh. The compromising church. Because they adopted, if you will, the doctrine and the counsel of Balaam. Balaam, of course, each time he was to curse the children of Israel, out came a blessing. You think, well, what's bad with that? Because he made a doctrine for the people. He says, let me tell you, Moab... How you can be successful against the children of Israel. Allow your daughters to seduce. 
Allow your daughters to, to seduce them. Go into the camp of the Israelites. Catch the men with their eyes and seduce them and invite them, if you will, to their sacrifices and their feasts, which was normally full of immorality and idolatry. And soon the men were eating at their tables and eating the food that was offered to false gods and sleeping in the beds, if you will, with pagan women and bowing themselves down to worthless idols. All of that happened because Balaam had counseled the Moabites to do such. Someone say amen. <laughs> See, what Balaam does is this. Balaam holds fast the name of the Lord. He's not going to deny the word of God, but he teaches the people to compromise principles. Someone say amen. And through the intermarriage, there would come corruption in Israel. And so here is the mindset of Balaam. If you can't curse them, corrupt them. Oh, what, what a dismal spot for the church of Pergamos to be in a compromising circumstance, a compromising situation. Amen. Being God's people, but still yet mixing with the world. Maintaining, if you will, certain Christian principles, but losing maybe sometimes some of our distinctives. Bringing in, if you will, what we call worldly, but just making it churchy enough that the church will accept it. It's happened for ages, folks. There's been people bring worldly music into the church, church it up a little bit, and let it be acceptable. Bring a fad out of the world into the church, say it's the right thing going, dress it up a little bit, and make it acceptable. Let the fashion of the world come in, influence the church, do a little bit with it, compromise with it, and make it acceptable. And then everybody does it. Before you know, you got a church on the road to compromise. Someone say amen. The attempt of Pergamos is to somehow wed, if you will, the people of God with the ways of the world. And as a footnote, it don't work. It won't work. So Moab corrupted Israel just the same that the world is desiring to corrupt the church. Because there are churches sometimes, and we sometimes, are more full of people who hold the values of the world, take their pleasures from the world, their priorities from the world, more so than they do God. Oh, no. The brass tax is this. There's sometimes that I pastor worldly people. And I'm not talking about it was their first service at First Apostolic. The spirit of Pergamos, compromising church. He said, I got to write a letter to Thyatira. It's the tolerant church. See, if you don't compromise, tolerance is very close to comp compromise. Tolerance means to allow. To allow. They were the tolerant church because the Bible says they allowed that prophetess Jezebel or the spirit of Jezebel to speak in the church. She was a false teacher. Jezebel was. She wasn't alive at this time, but the spirit of Jezebel was alive and might I say still is, still is alive. And she'll fester up to cause the church to allow some things, allow something, allow someone basically that should not be tolerated. See, a spirit can get in the church 
you can be doctrinally right and spiritually wrong. Doctrinally right and spiritually wrong. She says, I got, he said, that we, we, we got Thyatira Church. He said, we, we, we got to watch it. She said, she's, the tall, she's making some allowances. See, this is what the, the tolerant church looks like. We'll still baptize, but we'll give option whether it's Jesus' name or Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Come on now. Come on now. Or we'll give option. You can be sprinkled or you can go in immersion. Well, the tolerant church is this. We'll say you can receive the Holy Ghost without speaking in tongues. Or if you do, that's just a second blessing. He says, we, 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 we got to watch. We got to watch the tolerant church. Folks, I know people right now. I know friends, people that I grew up listening to in church camps uh, that preached God's word. I could pull out their tapes. I have just here recently listened to some of the things that they've said and wondered how in the world they are where they are when they said what they said back then. I could pull it up and it would baffle you. And let me tell you, some of these, listen to me. Some of them, they still preach that you must receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues. They still believe that you must be baptized in the lovely name of Jesus Christ they believe all of that the only thing where they went off is they have allowed the fads and the fashion of the world they've lost their distinction they become a tolerant church so this is this is bad news yeah what's well, bad news isn't it he said the church at Sardis he says you got a great reputation but the reality of the matter if I came and visited your church you're dead said, you have a reputation that you're alive. He said, but the reality is that you're a dead church. You have no life. You have no vitality. Huh? Good reputation. But dead church. Philadelphia, I'm trying to run. I'm trying to run. Philadelphia, it was the church of opportunity, the church of the open door, the church of promise. There was no negative condemnation brought up against Philadelphia. It was the church of opportunity and taking the opportunity and promise. Thank God for times like that when we're the church of the open door, the church of taking opportunity. And then the last church he spoke to was the church at Laodicea. It was the lukewarm church. He said, I worked that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. God spoke to them. And if you'll notice, in all of the different churches, the letter would be written to the church of the, the, the Ephesians or Ephesus, to the church of Pergamos, to the church of Smyrna. But whenever you get to chapter 3 of Laodicea, it says in verse 14, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. All the other letters were written to the church, but these were written to the people of the church because it had become their church. said the church at Smyrna, the church here. No, to the Laodiceans. Why? Because they took God's church and made it their church in a negative sense. See, that's what happened whenever Jesus was on the verge of leaving Jerusalem. He had been there and visited time and after time. He's standing up there. He's weeping over Jerusalem. He looks down upon them. He's crying. Tears are going down his face. And he says, oft times I would have gathered thee as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But ye would not. He says, your house, your house is left to you. Something's wrong there. Because earlier he had told them, my house should be called a house of prayer. And he turned over the tables of the money changers and all this. The problem of the Jerusalem church is this. They had taken God's house and made it their house. 
says, you're all lukewarm. You say, we're rich. We have need of nothing. He said, but the reality of the factor is you're blind. You're miserable. You know what the problem with the Laodicea was? They were in a situation that they couldn't see themselves. And there is no, no worse situation than to be in a place that you don't recognize yourself. Because you can't make any advancement for the better until you recognize and own where you are. So I said all this. John's taking inventory. Some things are good in the church. Some things are bad with some of the churches. It is all in turmoil. Man, this sounds pretty horrible. John himself was in a pretty bad place. But someone said there's hope for the church. Because whenever John was had his pen to the paper and he was recording all of these things, he talked about how he did see, amen, the seven stars, which was the, the seven, if you will, angels or the seven pastors, the seven leaders of the seven churches. He said, but when I seen the seven stars, I also seen the seven candlesticks. And verse 20 tells us what the seven candlesticks were. He said the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. The reason why they're is hope for the church regardless if she's dead regardless if she's compromising regardless if she is tolerating regardless if she is doing all these other things of being lukewarm there's hope for the church because in verse number 13 he said in the midst in the midst in the midst of the seven candlesticks which are the seven churches is the Lord Jesus Christ there's hope for the church today because he's not gone yet he's still walking meandering the footfall of the master is still among the church no matter how good or bad of a state she's in he's still there there's hope he's in the midst of the churches someone say amen he's in the midst he's in the midst for on a personal level, John says here, I heard the voice. Here I felt the spirit in a duplicable place. There's hope for you, John. But not just for you as an individual. There's hope for the church. Because he's in the midst of them. <laughs> God's moving. In the midst of the churches. There's no other scripture that quite Describes it like John has described it here of the Lord working and moving in the midst of the church. Tribulation, pressure, trouble, yes. Persecution, yes. Trouble for individuals in the church abroad, yes. But he's still working. I don't know if you understand what I'm talking about. He's still working in spite. In spite. Go on and evaluate your own life and remember in the back of your mind, he's still in the church. He's still working in spite of all this. You go on and stay with us during our times of being down and out as a church when we're compromising. I hope not. But when we're compromising, when we're being the tolerant church or when we're being the dead church, you just hang in there because he's still at work. He's still moving. Someone say yes. I got I to gotta run here. I got to run you will look at Matthew because I think this is where our responsibility is we do not have to question according to John 
No matter the dilemma of us as individuals or the church, we do not have to question whether or not he's there. He's there. He's moving. He's in the midst. Even some of that stuff, he's there. Some of that negative, he's there. Look what the Bible says in Matthew 7. I'm running toward close. I really am. Jesus says, ask, and it shall be given to you. Given you. I know, we, we, I know that these are just like old nature, right? We just hear this all the time. But listen, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth. Asketh, ask, and continues to ask. And he that seeketh, seeks, and continues to seek, findeth. And to him that knocketh, knocks and continues to knock, it shall be open. Now look. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good gifts to them that ask him. Everyone say amen. amen. He says, if your son asked bread, would you give him stone? Of course not. If he asked fish, would you give him serpent? Of course not. Not only is the focus here that an earthly father would give his son something he didn't ask for or give him something different than what he asked for. The crux of the focus also is here that the father will give when the son asks. The father will give when the son asks. Someone say amen. Someone say amen. John, you got problems? Tyra, Tyra, are you a little bit off in left field? Someone hear me. Sardis, are you twice dead, plucked up by the roots? The dilemma isn't that he isn't around or that he isn't there or that he isn't moving, but I need my church and I need my people to ask of me. Someone hear me today. Someone hear me today. This is the way that we live life sometimes. You know, I really don't ask much of God. Listen, I understand two things are at work there. Amen. Or mainly one thing. One thing, sometimes that's a spirit of pride. You don't want to ask because you're self-sufficient. You're too prideful to ask. I don't ask things of God. God told us to ask things of him. Amen. So that could be a spirit of pride. But in this hour that we're living... I don't need to shoulder the responsibility and push it all off on God as though he's not there. That's not the dilemma. The dilemma is that we're not asking. I know that's very deep and profound. You're still trying to put your mind around it and you'll get it when you get home. But the fact of the matter, someone hasn't opened their mouth. See, I can do real good as a pastor. I can be real good as a church. I can do real good as an individual. And I can talk about how bad things are. And I can criticize how if God would do something, things would be better. And I can go down the list and just pinpoint how all this would turn around. And I can complain to God, but never ask God. Someone say amen. Uh, 
He says, if you're you as fathers do this, your heavenly father, he'll give good things to them what? That ask. Solomon in all of his kingly array and glory, not another like him. His, 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 his kingdom surpassed, it seemed, all others in riches. He was a man of wisdom and of wealth. Amen. But my Bible, listen to me. My Bible tells me that Solomon gave to a stranger. Solomon gave to a stranger, somebody that was foreign to him, foreign to his land. He gave to a stranger gifts and even allowed the stranger to tour all of his bounty, his treasure houses, his personal bounty. He did all of this for a stranger. You know why? Not because he thought, you know what, I'm just going to be generous and do this for the Queen of Sheba. That wasn't it. Solomon did it because she took a journey of hundreds of miles. Some say 900 miles. She took a journey of some 900 miles to seek out. To seek out the greatness of this king she heard about. For her, she said, I heard about it, but I had to find it out for myself. She sought out the greatness and the grandeur of Solomon's wisdom, of Solomon's wealth, and he opened up his bounty. He opened up his treasure houses. He gave to her because she sought it out. She was in... I'm saying there's hope for the church in this hour and there's hope for people in this hour if they'll just ask and if they'll just seek out the Lord that is walking among the candlesticks, the Lord that's walking among all the dilemma and the problems. If you'll seek out his greatness and his majesty, he'll give to you. He will give. People, I'm coming close. People of Moses' day could have said, that no good brown noser Moses. Boy, that, that goody tissue. That little, ah, man. He thinks that God has his picture on his mantle. He's around here talking about having seen the hinder parts of the glory of the Lord. Don't he think himself something? But the only reason, the only reason why Moses seen the hinder parts of the glory of the Lord is because through his life and all the experiences of, uh, of the plagues in Egypt and getting them out and all that stuff after it was all said and done, brother, you know what? Moses had a question. He said, Lord, will you show me? Will you show me? I know I'm in a mountain right here where you're at. I know your presence is here, but will you show me? Your glory. 
He says, Moses, I got a place for you in the cleft of the rock. And I'm putting my hand over there. And as I pass by, you can see my glory. It wasn't that Moses was a brown noser or somebody better than anybody else. It was just that Moses had the fortitude and the tenacity and say, God, can I? May I? Somebody needs to stand up in Holy Ghost boldness tonight and say, God, will you, shall you, can I, may I? I know you're here somewhere. It's dismal times. God, can you do something about this? Will you show your glory? There's hope for you in the church, but somebody's got to ask. If you'll stand with me tonight. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We're not dealing with an absentee God. We're not dealing with an absentee God. We're not dealing with a God that's went on vacation somewhere as those of the prophets of the grove and Baal thought concerning their God. He's not at a distance. He's not asleep somewhere. He's not on a journey. We got a very present God, but somebody's got to ask. Somebody's got to ask. We're opening these altars tonight for people with the tenacity to ask. People that says, God, I know you're in your church. I know you're in and among your people. God, I'm going to ask of you. I'm going to seek the greatness of your glory. I'm going to seek the greatness of your majesty. I'm going to seek the greatness, Lord, of your spirit. Will you, God? Shall you, God? Help me, God. Can I, God? And if you ask and keep on asking, God is going to answer. If you'll not keep on knocking, God's going to open the door. If you'll seek and keep on seeking, God is going to allow you to find. But somebody must ask. Somebody must seek. Somebody must knock. He's not far from every one of us. Hallelujah. These altars are open. Can we gather in these? Those that will. Can we gather in these? God. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.